0: You're listening to Matter of Pride, the lighthearted education for queers and allies with me, comedian Erin Twitchin. Each week, I take a different area of gay history and break down the basics. I do the Google, so you don't have to. This week, we're looking at blood donation or the lack thereof in the gay community. And there's a sneaky peek into my history as a sex educator. That's not what you think. If you want to support the show, you can be a bay and subscribe to the Patreon or by cute merch from my humbly titled website, www.ilovearon.co.uk. For more information on the issues covered in this show, there are links to resources in the show notes. As ever, the best way to support the show is by sharing on social media or leaving a review on iTunes. Let's get into it. I remember first giving blood. It was in 2002 whilst I was at college. We mostly went for the free biscuits and because the nurse was fit. My friend Lucy fainted, not because the nurse asked for her number, he did, but she composed herself for that, but because her iron levels were low. Over the next few weeks, she tested for anemia, which she was kind of hoping she had as it would be an excuse to give up the veganism she'd broken six times that week. Turns out she was just hungover, but some very similar symptoms. Over the following decade, Lucy kept her iron in check and was able to make donations regularly. My first time was fine. I was a big brave boy, gave my pint, got my sticker, but two years later, I was denied blood donation indefinitely because there was an outright ban on accepting blood from men who had had sex with other men. It felt like a shun to me. Gay men deserve free biscuits too. Not that we would eat them during swimsuit season. The restrictions are not there to be intentionally homophobic. It's all about reducing the risks of infections within blood, which is then passed on to other patients. But I couldn't help but feel actively shunned. Here I was, being told that by having sex, I was dirty and wrong and had tainted my blood forever. The ban on gay male blood donations started in the 1980s as a result of the AIDS epidemic. Currently, the risk of infection from transfusion is extremely low. One in 6.7 million for HIV, one in 1.3 million for hepatitis B, and one in just 28 million for hepatitis C. So that's just 0000036 percent chance of people catching it. Which is the same likelihood as a listener of this podcast finding Michael Gove attractive. Regardless, HIV is not an exclusively gay disease. It never was. Is it higher in that community? Yes. In 2016, the UK estimated HIV prevalence of the general population was 1.6 per thousand. In gay males, it was 58.7 per thousand. That's a huge increase, but it's still not everyone. At least two of the Spice Girls voted Tory, but That doesn't mean they all want to remix the lyrics of Spice Up Your Life into a pro-Brexit anthem. It is a form of prejudice, because these rules don't apply to straight couples or women who have sex with women. Furthermore, it doesn't allow for individuals within those groups who are at lower risk, such as monogamous gay male couples, to continue to donate. When I first came out, as a naive 16-year-old, I was friends with a small group of devout Christians my mum referred to as the God Squad. One godder, Andrew, was smart. Like, really smart. He watched Countdown for fun and could complete a Rubik's Cube without peeling any of the stickers. Despite how smart he was, he genuinely believed that if you had gay sex, you would get AIDS. Instantly. Gay sex, just once, AIDS, guaranteed. Like it lurked in every bum hold, just waiting to pounce. Even if you wiped your ass too vigorously, you could be at risk. Of course, this isn't true. And it wasn't his fault that he thought that. Countdown and Rubik's cues had taught him no different. But how can we fight thoughts like that when literal government guidelines exclude people based on similar reasons? I hate to call it discrimination, but when you stop someone doing something based purely on their sexuality, I don't know what other word to use. Very few of us really understand where donated blood comes from or how it works. 48% of people surveyed believed hospitals would approach a family member if blood was needed. But if the hospitals aren't busy enough, this is categorically not true. So if your grandma has been storing pints of it in her fridge, it's time to chuck that out. 13% of people believe blood could be synthetically created, which kind of makes sense actually. Like, my friend, Victoria Beckham, had synthetic hair, teeth, and tits, so only seems logical someone would have worked on blood by now. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Platelets are not as easy to synthesise as a double D cup that looks like the top of two French fancies. 1.3 million people give blood each year, but that's just 2.3% of the eligible population. So just by giving blood you can stop yourself being basic. No matter how much Taylor Swift you listen to or how many Angora jumpers you wear, that one pint a year puts you in an exceptional hero bracket. Blood demand is unpredictable. Every day, NHS blood and transport teams need 6,000 people to donate blood to maintain stock levels because whole blood can only be stored for 35 days. Platelets, meanwhile, only last for seven days. In 2015, they revealed 40% fewer new donors that year compared with the previous decade. Bloody millennials. We're all too busy watching Love Island and working three jobs to get a mortgage to save our fellow man. Maybe if they offered avocado on toast instead of custard creams, we'd all be rushing down there. Because there really is a huge demand. In March 2020, NHS were urging people to donate after a 15% drop in levels due to the coronavirus crisis. And that's in the general population. When you break it down by ethnicity, it gets even trickier. Only 1% of blood donors in the UK were black, a population which is 10 times more likely to have the crucial RO and B positive blood types needed to treat sickle cell disease. There have been many changes to rules over the years to increase new donors, especially for gay men. In 2011, the lifetime ban was reduced to those who hadn't engaged in man-on-man sex within the last 12 months. But let's be real, who is that really allowing in? Unless 10 years into a relationship sex becomes an annual birthday treat, which to be honest, I really hope it does. I just have so many other things to do. I'm only halfway through the first season of Shits Creek. Stop touching me. In 2017, restrictions reduced again from 12 months sex treat to three months. This puts it at the same exclusion level as a tattoo. I mean... I've met some men the size of a needle, but I'm not sure I'd find it any more dangerous. Change is prompted by improved testing in blood-borne viruses, such as hepatitis and HIV. Now, this may be a poor reflection on my love life, but I'm proud to say, currently, I am a regular platelet donor. My romance is so dry, I can now give every three to four weeks. Thank you, COVID. I genuinely feel bad for people who don't donate because the snack game is lit. I hadn't seen an Orange Club chocolate bar since 2003. They gave me six. The NHS might be single-handedly saving McVitie's. I haven't been this actively encouraged to carb load since I ran a half marathon. And donating is so easy. I've done a lot less for a biscuit. It was so easy, I offered my kidneys in exchange for a steak, but they said to keep something for myself. In the 10 years between 2007 and 2016, only 10 bacterial and 10 viral incidents have been caught from blood donation. Most of these were hepatitis transmitted before the introduction of routine screening. It's scary, but 10 is not a lot when you consider the 25 million units of blood transfused in that time. 10 is small. 10 is low. 10 is not even enough to form a Blazing Squad tribute band. The UK has a rigorous blood testing function that we should be proud of that's carried out on every donation. They test blood groups to confirm type, whilst also testing for infections such as syphilis, hepatitis and HIV. Any sample that is reactive to a test just cannot be used, and further tests are then carried out. And if it confirms it's positive, they'll notify you. Over on the continent, some countries take a more liberal approach to blood donation after careful consideration of harm. In Italy, a Blood Safety Advisory Committee released a report in 2017 estimating the risk of HIV infection through blood donation was between 0.18 to 0.67 per million. Now, that may just sound like a number, but the acceptable level is one. So, you know, like, way below one. Italy changed from permanent deferral of men who have sex with men to an individual risk assessment in 2001 just a year before I first gave blood and my friend fainted. The donor, that's you or me, completes a questionnaire about their sex life, or in my case, lack thereof, and has a quick chat with the doctor to discuss their risk level. Donors could be deemed safe, dry love life, risky, for example, if you've had a new sexual partner, or high risk, going out banging everyone. The higher the risk level, the longer the deferral, regardless of sexuality. A comparison between 1999 and 2009 showed no significant change in HIV prevalence in either first time or repeat donors. What they did find is issues with people following the rules. Surprise! Mainly because people didn't believe their behavior to be risky or completely underestimated that risk. Carrie Bradshaw style, I started to wonder. Is this about sexual risk? Or is this about our own understanding and education of sexual risk? Are we all Andrews, scared of our own bottoms? I try and be very responsible about my sexual health. Getting tested annually and if I ever meet a new partner. I've always thought sexual testing should be treated like the dentist. Going and visiting every six months. Not just waiting for something to turn green and fall out. And this should not be exclusive to gay men. I was stunned to learn how many of my straight girlfriends have never had an STI check, never. That's why when I was last in charge of brunch venues, I sent them the postcode for the dropping clinic and turned up with a picnic basket and thermos full of martini. The rules around who can donate do not just apply to men who have sex with men. They also apply to women who have sex with men who have sex with men get your head around that one. Basically, to get blood, you need to know if any of your sexual partners have had sex with men, or have ever injected drugs, or have ever been sexually active in Africa. Which feels like a very awkward question to bring up on a Tinder date. I mean, getting the names and addresses and genders of the last few people they slept with is tricky enough. I very rarely get the full name of the guy I'm sleeping with. Straight men and women are just as at risk of sexual diseases as anyone else, especially when on the pill. If you've ever woken up to a crusty puss in your pants, you'll know pregnancy is not the only undesirable outcome of a one-night stand. And it's not just young people. SEIs are massively on the rise in older age groups due to the rise in divorces and cheap availability of saga cruises. One in five married couples admit to affairs. And who are they having affairs with? My friends who have never been tested. You could have Carly's secondhand crabs and catch it from your husband. Get yourself tested. You do have time. You watch two series of Married at First Sight Australia. That's 82 hours. Spend some of those stopping your willy falling off. It's what Cyrell would have wanted. Regular sexual testing should be the smart choice for all of us. But there is a shame and stigma around going to the clinic. Which is why I think we should encourage all of our friends to give blood. Encourage yourself. Then you know you've been tested for your STIs and you've saved a life. It really is a win-win. And with the NHS struggling financially, I don't see why we don't just fuse the two together. Go for your blood test, get your STI test. Go for your blood donation, give an STI donate Maybe not that bit. When I was growing up in Broughton, the largest village in Europe, I was part of an experimental sex education programme called APAUSE. The concept was, teenagers are being taught sex education by their teachers, who are old. Like, really old. Some of them must be nearly 30, and that ain't rad, man. Admittedly, our school nurse was about 70, and we rarely got shown to put a condom on a banana after 11am because she'd forget and eat it for her lunch. To improve on this, health experts decided the people kids listen to, the people who really got their attention, the ones kids really admire, are older teenagers. So they brought in 17-year-olds from the local college to deliver the programme. Cue me. What they didn't account for? Volunteers who want to participate in an STD prevention programme are not the cool kids. They're the Power Ranger loving dorks who want to earn volunteer credits for uni which is how I, a 17-year-old virgin who had kissed exactly one boy and cut my tongue doing it, was sent into schools to teach about contraception. Well, let me tell you, these kids knew way more than me. Like, way more than me. I don't actually remember teaching the course. I appear to have completely repressed it. I only know it happened because my record of achievement has a certificate for 50 hours volunteering, but mentally? I blocked everything past walking in on the first day and hearing a small, wiry kid say, Oh great, here comes the jock, the hippie, the goth and the gay. Which actually sounds like a fun Devonian take on the village people. What I do remember is the training we received. The a programme was four sessions long and its apex was an interactive exercise on the power of saying no. We, the 17-year-old virgins, had to teach the worldly 14-year-olds how to resist peer pressure. We'd use classic lines a partner might say to get you into bed, and they would have to resist. Lines like, But I really want to. Or, Everyone else is doing it. Or, But I bought you a McDonald's. And they would have to say, No, you're making me feel bad. I'm going to remove myself from this situation by going to walk my goldfish. That was an actual line from the APORS course that they were really particularly proud of. The coaches really wanted us to be good at the seduction too. For realism, we had two days training to deliver these sessions. A lot of time was spent on the power of saying no exercise, especially brainstorming better chat-up lines to really get the kids going. Which means the government funded the NHS to train 40-something divorced men to chat up 17-year-old college students so they could go on and seduce 14-year-old school children. Good intentioned? Probably. Problematic? Uh, Hell yes. This was in 2002, before the repeal of Section 28, which banned the promotion and education of homosexuality in school settings. So none of the scripts or sessions referenced same-sex relationships in any form. Which was fine by me, I didn't have any knowledge to share with them anyway. My mum was a regular blood donor. I watched her give blood every three months in the Broughton Village Hall, the same hall I taught those a lessons. I remember her getting a badge for 25 donations and being so proud. I remember aspiring to try and match that. My personal issue now, as a donor, as someone who wants to continue being a donor, I feel guilty about anything I do that compromises my ability to donate. And for me, simply having a boyfriend completely stops it. I feel a sense of shame and regret about flirtation or a date. A sense of shame and regret that echoes the same sense of shame and regret I felt burying same-sex relationships in school education. I think as queer people we have a complicated relationship with our sexuality, often shaped by the media. Whether it's the paedophile nonce narrative of the 80s or having to fight for the right to have a partnership recognised in law or from a complete legal ban on anything that could protect or educate children being taught in schools. To have another public body highlight your romantic activity as risky, just simply by existing, is... It's painful. Especially when that risky category applies to monogamous male-male relationships. How are we ever meant to change the minds of the Andrews in this world when not even the science can? There are gaps in my donation records. Long gaps. Gaps so long, I don't know if I'll hit that 25 badge mark. Gaps so long, it was actually quite difficult at first to book a test and explain to the nurses. Also, a bit embarrassing. And I totally understand the difficult balance of the blood and transplant service, it must be tricky in deciding these restrictions. You have to make sweeping statements to mass protect a population, and that inevitably will block and hurt some people. But where do we draw the line? For instance, there's a lifetime ban for anyone who has ever received money for sex. But what counts as receiving money for sex? I know that Julia Roberts walking the streets of Los Angeles in Pretty Woman was receiving money for sex. But what about at the end of the movie, when she falls in love with him, and she doesn't work, and he pays for everything? Is she still being paid for sex then? What about my friend Cassie, who had three babies so she could stay at home and be a housewife? Is that sex for money? Because she isn't earning otherwise. I mean... I know a lot of girls who go for guys with speedboats, fast cars, or access to a McDonald's drive through Is that sex for money? I guess what it boils down to is the shame we associate with those activities. Yes, sex work can be much riskier. But is a porn set, with regular active screening and presumably people being a lot more careful because this is their profession... Any more risky than my friend Carly, who at 34 still hasn't taken an STI check. She came to the brunch, but she took the thermos and ran. Thanks to the work of the Freedom to Donate charity and many other campaigners, new rules will be introduced in 2021 that will greatly reduce stigma towards the homosexual community. The new rules switch to an individualised policy that will assess everyone's activity, much like the Italian model. It will allow those in monogamous relationships or those who haven't had more than one sexual partner in the last three months, to give blood. However, there will still be a ban on those who use PrEP, or have a history of chemsex, all based on associations, rather than that individual's actual risk or test clearance. The new rules are great, they certainly mean I can start dating again, but it will never be enough to wash away the years of shame blanket policies like that build up. Not just within communities, but inside ourselves. I may never shift the shame I feel towards gay sex, which is ridiculous. What's the point in having erogenous zones if not to use them? They certainly weren't put on us so we could rub them into oblivion whilst watching the Red Power Ranger. I think back to my time teaching the APORS sex education programme. I couldn't say for certain, but statistically, I would have been teaching at least a couple young gay men and women, right? I wonder how being presented with an example of an out gay male talking about sex education would have made a difference to their lives. Especially during a time as the reign of Section 28 came to a close. I may not remember it, but I hope they do. Thanks for listening. This show was written by, performed by, produced by, and recorded by me, Aaron Twitchen. I did everything. All from a closet, ironically. It is all completely self-funded and self-produced. As ever, best way to support the podcast is by sharing it directly with friends or by leaving a review on iTunes. Unless you're a radio producer, in which case, commission me. If you want to be an absolute bay, you can subscribe to the Patreon or buy Cute Matter of Pride merch. All links are available on my humbly titled website, IloveAaron.co.uk. Remember to hit subscribe and I will speak with you next week. Love always, Aaron.